This is episode 35 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the Danicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode 35 of Ethics and Culture Cast from Notre Dame's Danicola Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the communications specialist at the center. In this episode, we sit down with Professor Ernest Morell of the Center for Literacy Education and the Departments of English and Africana Studies. We talk about his journey to Notre Dame, his work forming future educators, and the necessity of developing a critical media literacy. Let's sit down for this week's wonderful conversation. Well, Professor Ernest Morell, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure, Ken. So tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, Where are you from? Where did you do your studies? Uh, What did you do before you came to Notre Dame? Well, I was uh, born and raised in Northern California. Um, I was born in Oakland, but mostly raised in San Jose. Mm -hmm. Um, So I spent my entire first 40 years in California. Um, I did my undergraduate work at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and then I was a high school teacher for a while in the Bay Area. Uh, and during that time, I went back to graduate school, and I got my um, MA and my PhD from Berkeley. Okay. So when I finished, um, as I was finishing, and it was the late 90s, uh, we moved to Southern California, and I began working at UCLA while I was finishing my degree, and I got a, a job in an institute there. So I spent um, the, most of the next decade at UCLA um, from being a graduate student to an associate professor. Uh, in 2009, 2010, I was approached by the provost at Columbia and asked if I wanted to direct an institute out there. So um, in 2010, I applied for that position, and so I spent seven years as the director of an institute and a faculty member at Columbia um, prior to coming here. So yeah. most of the past 20 years, uh, San Francisco, New York, and Los Angeles, and okay. now South Bend. <laughs> yeah, coast to coast now to the, now yeah, to the center. Yeah, huh? yeah, so that's uh, kind of how... Um, how the first uh, you know phases of my life went prior to coming to Notre Dame. Awesome. Well, why did you and your family want to come to Notre Dame? What brought you here? Well, I mean, it's a uh, you know it's an interesting question because it was um, during my tenure at Columbia where um, you know I had passed the last barrier review we call them. I became a full professor and an endowed professor. I was a director of an institute. I was also president of our professional organization. And I began doing a lot of thinking about, um, like, what is it that I want to do with the rest of my career? Because I was relatively young to have, you know, kind of leapt over all those bars. And, yeah. you know, so um, I had a lot of career ahead of me. And I began thinking about, um, you know, from a couple of ways. One, from the research I wanted to do, but two, just the quality of professorial life and what it's like um, to be a Catholic at um, an anti-Catholic university. Mm-hmm. You know, we can call them a religious, but that's just... Um, more innocuous than it really is. You know, yeah. it's a, it, it, you learn, um, and I love my time in the Ivy League and the University of California system, but to be honest, um, they're, they're anti-Catholic spaces. And um, there's some outright hostility, but then there's just also a real tempering of, of, of the energy that otherwise could evolve into really good work. Um, there you connect the principles of Catholic social teaching and mm-hmm. your scholarship. Yeah. And that became more and more of a desire. Part of it was a real specific desire to do work in Catholic schools. Mm-hmm. 
but more so was uh, a, a more broader intellectual thrust that, that I, I should be able to bring my, my Catholic identity into my scholarship more robustly. I've proven that I can do peer review research and teach at a high level. So that, it, it, it was that desire that, that ultimately led me to reach out to, uh, to Father Tim Scully, mm-hmm. who I saw as doing really innovative work um, that looked at vulnerable populations, um, looked at literacy and education, and looked at it through the lens of, of, of Catholic identity or Catholic schools. And we struck up a relationship. He invited me to do a talk, and then um, I became a visiting professor for a couple of years. And I thought, you know, this will be a nice partnership. Sure. At that point, you know, um, my family was settled in Long Island and my kids were in school. And um, I, I figured that, that that would be the the medium term plan. I, I didn't think I would be in South Bend full time, but I brought my family out for a summer um, where I was doing some research and teaching. And they just fell in love with the place. Wow. You know, like this is where we were meant to be. And I thought that they wouldn't be into it. So there was the family part of it where we could really condense our life into the city of South Bend, you know, focused around Notre Dame. And my kids at that time were elementary and high school. So St. Joe Elementary School, St. Mm-hmm. Joe High School. Um, but they just wanted to be a part of this a vibrant campus. And uh, so then I began some conversations with folks and uh, they they made me an offer and brought the family out. So, um, you know, it's just been amazing to be at a place that's got, you know, kind of the Ivy League, you see academics, but there's also, you know, you know, the, the Virgin on the dome, right? right. And the grotto and the basilica. And the, yeah. You don't have that on, on Columbia's campus. So there's no difference in terms of the, you know, the caliber of scholarship and the students, but there's a real difference in terms of our mission. That's awesome. How did, and everybody's happy now, now that you're settled in here? Everyone's happy. Well, the oldest is here now. He's a sophomore <laughs> right. uh, at, at, at the University of Notre Dame. At that point, he was a high school student, and I have a high schooler and elementary school student, and they, they love it. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Well, now, so you are here as the COIL professor in literacy education and the inaugural director of the Center for Literacy Education in the Institute for Educational Initiatives, which is part of ACE. Yep. Uh, you also hold joint appointments in the departments of English and of Africana Studies. So tell us a bit about your students. Uh, who are they and, and what do you teach? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, sir. Um, so I, I, um, I've been teaching undergraduates, which I love. You know, then my work at UCLA in Columbia, um, I taught some undergraduates, but they kind of voiced you on graduate students. So, yeah. so the undergraduates have been really, really great to work with. Um, I, have a, I have a kind of three lines in terms of the courses. So um, – one really looks at um, how you apply um, critical theories to thinking differently about education and working with, with young people. So that's my Africana Studies class. It's also cross-listed in the Education, Schooling, and Society minor. And so we start, I mean, you're looking at, um, you know, kind of old philosophy and you end up looking at um, like youth projects and communities and hip hop and you know how to how to get kids excited about learning um, it's interesting because in part of that um, we'll read Basil Moreau and we'll read uh, Luigi Giussani mm-hmm. you know and so you get a sense of you know kind of the theological approach and the critical approach and at the same time what young people are struggling with today and how to connect to the issues that matter to them at the same time they still have to learn yeah. So that class is uh, called Critical Pedagogy and Popular Culture. And um, I get students from all different majors for that. But it's an Africana Studies class. In English, um, my focus has mostly been 
on the literatures of the African diaspora. So I teach a post-colonial uh, literature and literary theory class um, where, you know, we begin to think about post-colonial voices. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I frame it um, using the post-colonial theory, but I also um, frame it by looking at the church. Like we have a post-colonial church. And how do we account for the voices that have been muted in the past, mm-hmm. you know, and thinking about allowing for this kind of multicultural, multilingual expression. And how do we hold on to the things that we we value from what has been called the colonial age, right? So it's not dismissing, um, you know, the modern age of the last 500 years, but it is putting it in a different context. Yeah. And, you know, we read um, some pretty dynamic authors who have a lot of ideas about that. But I tell them it's not about, you know, hating who we are or where we've been. It's just about getting better, right? And, uh, you know, I think that uh, the church does that very well. And, uh, you know, the the recent visit, uh, the Pope to Africa, thinking about this is the future of the church. Like, it's yeah. not just the future of the church, it's the future of the planet. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to be a place at Notre Dame where the church does its thinking, we're going to be a place to prepare young people for the world, we have to understand that um, in order to work profoundly in the world, you have to understand it. Yeah. And one of the ways to understand it is through encountering literatures where people have described themselves in their own words. Right. So we'll yeah. read Chinua Achebe and his experiences in Ghana. We'll read Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Um, we uh, Salman Rushdie in India. Um, Jamaica Kincaid in the Caribbean. You know, um, Toni Morrison. Uh, so just a lot of different voices from different perspectives. Um, I teach a, a class on Toni Morrison. Uh, as an author who I think is just um, just so so profoundly poignant in so many different ways, you know, as, a, as an American author, as an African-American author, as a woman author, and as a Catholic author. Mm-hmm. And so we'll look at Toni Morrison's work across each of those, right? right. And that's her, her Americanness, her Africanness, her, her womanness, and her Catholicness. Uh, so that's a, that, that's a fun class. Yeah. And then I have yeah. a, a couple others, um, Caribbean lit, um, that you know, down the pipeline, but I, I can only teach so many classes. <laughs> right, right. But the students are great. You know, they um, they come, they want to learn, they want to be challenged. Um, they, they want to have a sense of their place in the world. They're very thoughtful. Um, you know, the class discussions are uh, really powerful. It's, it's fun um, working with them as a group. It's working one-on-one, advising theses, mm-hmm. seeing where they take these ideas into the world. Do you get to work with graduate students as well? I have not worked so much with graduate students here. The, yeah, yeah. the Well, I shouldn't say that. I haven't worked with doctoral students. The master's students I have had a chance to work with through the Alliance for Catholic Education. Yeah. People who are post the bachelor's degree but are going to be teachers in Catholic schools. Mm-hmm. And so I do a lot with them around the critical pedagogy, what we call critical Catholic pedagogy. The Alliance for Catholic Education is a two-year program where students will teach in the most high-need Catholic schools around the country, so everywhere from, you know, like Biloxi and Mississippi out to Santa Ana Mm -hmm. and California to New York and Philadelphia, Chicago. Um, So that's a great program. And um, about half the students come from Notre Dame, half the students come from other places. And um, half of them are going to go into like elementary education. Half of them are going to go into secondary education. So I I do get a chance to work with them um, pretty intensely. Awesome. Now, you've been a member of the DeNicola Center's Faculty Advisory Committee pretty much since arriving on campus two years ago. How did you 
how did that happen? How did you get involved with, with us? And, and then what has been your involvement with, uh, with our students, especially like with our Soren fellows? Yeah, so the two years before coming to Notre Dame full-time when I was a visiting professor, I got a chance to meet a lot of faculty. And so Carter Sneed, your director, found me, you know. Yeah. Uh, and we struck up a relationship. Um, and uh, he said, you know, I, I'd love for you to be a part of this, part of this center. Uh, so it was really the personal relationship with Carter and over the past two years, um, really, it's been longer than that. Um, there's been all sorts of wonderful ways from you know, chairing um, sessions at the conference to um, having Soren Fellows in our home for dinner. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, uh, we also um, hosted a reading group for Flannery O'Connor mm-hmm. uh, with the undergraduates. Um, last year, I was invited to be the Bread of Life keynote speaker, yeah. and so I was able to um, you know, speak with the students uh, around that, and that's led into just some personal interactions with the students. And um, as we were talking off the air, um, there was a student who was at the Bread of Life dinner who um, formed her senior thesis project, largely around response to that. So I'm the second advisor on her thesis, so we get to kind of meet and talk about, you know, how some of these ideas that I mentioned in that talk are actually going to inform her her senior project. Wow. Well, let's talk a bit about that, because that was last fall. You spoke, uh, as you say, at our Bread of Life dinner, and your talk was entitled Fighting for Life in the Digital Age, Media Literacy and the New Evangelization. Uh, You talked there and you urged students to develop what you called a pro-life media literacy, which doesn't simply ignore the pervasive anti-Catholic, anti-life message that is presented in the popular media by taking a head-in-the-sand approach, as you called it. But uh, instead, you were advocating a combination of healthy skepticism, creativity, and then developing technical skills to make better media. I mean, you you said exactly, if we don't like the media we have, develop the skills to create another. Um, so you challenged us, and it was an awesome talk, and we'll link to it in the in the show notes, but you, you kind of gave 10 kind of practical takeaways and challenges at the end, but maybe you can kind of unpack that a bit for us and, and maybe maybe even issue a challenge or two here if you'd like. Yeah, first of all, that was a, a much better summation of the talk than I think the talk itself. <laughs> so no, I'm going to have to copy your notes <laughs> yeah. here. Uh, no, I, I think that the challenge, I um, in preparation for, for our conversation, I thought of, you know, four distinct categories. And this is the same way that I talk about media literacy with young people and with teachers. So the first one is about how we consume. How can we be smarter consumers of the culture that does exist? Mm -hmm. And the way that I think about it for the pro-life media literacy is, what are the questions that we should be asking of the text? And by text, I mean everything from a film to the internet to apps. What are the questions that we should be asking of those texts as we consume them? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I am uh, inspired to do is we should probably come up with just a list of these, like 10 questions you should ask of every TV show you watch. And one of the things about the media that is pretty clear in the scholarship is that it it, it changes and in some ways co-ops our perspective even though we don't know that it's happening. Mm-hmm. Right? We get our ideas from all sorts of places, but you know, it's just, you start walking like your father. When you get a certain age, it's not like your dad ever set you down and said, here, walk like me. But you just you observe it, and you, all of a sudden, it's like you start walking and talking like your parents. The, the media is the same way. They, in, in nutrition, they say you are what you eat. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, um, 
in terms of a, of a, of a media um, you know, uh, engagement, you are what you uncritically consume. So how do we watch shows and play video games and listen to music um, and engage in a popular culture that we know is pretty overtly anti-Catholic without imbibing some of those values. Right? Yeah, yeah. So we want to ask specific questions, you know, and I, in the Bread of Life dinner, I was really talking to young people about kind of attitudes toward sex and sexuality that kind of lead to uh, an anti-life agenda, so to speak. Um, and I, and I don't encourage young people necessarily to turn completely away from that consumption. Right. Um, but, but I do challenge them to have a critical consumption ask better questions. Um, that'll lead into some of the other things I think that, that are important in terms of the challenge. But but one one thing that we can all do is is ask real tough questions of, of, of what we consume and like how how is this anti Catholic agenda playing out? Not just that it is, but in what ways? Like how is the church referred to? Um, one of the things that, that I've noticed um, in a lot of the popular culture that's targeted to young people is there are no consequences for actions. So we've had just in the past week, we can have like six kids that have died from vaping. Yeah. No one ever dies from vaping on a TV show, right? It's just fun, right? Right. <laughs> no one ever turns up pregnant when they have unprotected sex on a, they, it just, it, so, so the, asking these critical questions, how are they, these young people able to engage in these activities without having anything bad happen to them? Or when was the last time, you know, you listened to a song that promoted uh, monogamous, healthy relationships between married people, right? Right. And they say, "Well, okay, maybe it's not in there." So, but but what 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 is in there? Um, so, asking better questions. I do think that there will be some impetus to walk away from some of this culture. Mm -hmm. But then it leads into the second point, and and I worry that there's a there's a vacuousness. There's there's, there's an emptiness in terms of what we replace that with. Right. So you can't take a 19-year-old or even a 39-year-old and take all of their goodies away from them. Here, don't listen to this music. Don't watch this. And like, well, what, what, what do I listen to or watch? So the, right. the second challenge is more about production, right? So what, what are we producing? Um, and you know, we we live in an age now where the technologies have become, you know democratively accessible, right? Yeah. It's just, just everyone's got democratic access, almost everyone, to technologies of production, whether it's your cell phone or you've got more sophisticated equipment. Um, you Anybody can, can podcast, Yeah, exactly. for example. Yeah, you can use what's in your back pocket to, yeah. to, to send a message to millions. Mm -hmm. So we have to be more intentional in the media we produce and the media we sanction. Um, and a lot of that will be in response to the questions that we ask of the media that exist. Um, we, we need to see more uh, media that show moms and dads who love each other and talk to each other in kind ways and mm -hmm. love their kids and love God. Right? Um, that's rare to see, you know, the yeah. way that marriage is just constructed as a battle of the sexes in a lot of popular culture, right? right. And, and kids are against their parents and husbands are against wives and wives are against husbands and they hate their bosses. And the and dad's always a dummy. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. So yeah, it's like the, the dumb dad motif. Mm -hmm. right? It's like, mm -hmm. it's, it's so dumb, right? yeah. but, it's, but it's out there. Um, but we can produce otherwise, you know, to writing our own novels and plays 
uh, making our own films, um, writing our own songs, having our own mobile applications that are just as engaging and exciting um, for young people and compelling in terms of its entertainment purposes, but they're more educative, mm -hmm. uh, or at least all media are educative, but they're educative in terms of our Catholic values. And I feel like that's where we are in the most deficit right now yeah. is cultural producers. And that's why I really challenged. Uh, you can frown your nose at the movie, but like, go make one. Right, <laughs> right. and make it compelling. Yeah. Because there, there are lots of, you know, Christian family, faith-friendly films, but they're not always good. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, if this is the best we have to offer, that's just not compelling. No, either. yeah. When I was a kid, I was into hip-hop, and my dad, you know, there was, there was Christian hip-hop. He's like, why don't you listen to this? I was like, dad, it's bad. <laughs> it's bad. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we do have to get better about that. And that's where I think um, the young generation, they're, they're hip. You know, and we've got um, just the... Uh, ecclesial movements now. I mean, these young people are so fired up and they're mm -hmm. so talented. Just, you know, um, we need to harness that energy, yeah. right? And um, be a filmmaker. Uh, we need to support that. So the third area is really um, how we curate and distribute. And this is where everyone can play a role, you know, whether it's social media or whether it's just getting up in front of your parish and making an announcement. Mm -hmm. um, when, when people do create the media that we are inspired by, how do we share that? Yeah. Right? There's a talent to that. Um, you know, I used to just have a two-part model, and it was consumption and production. And I think, no, there is a science to the, the curation and distribution, whether it's my Twitter feed, you have a Twitter feed, I have a Twitter feed. And, yeah. You know, um, I've got 10,000 followers out there on yeah. Twitter. So that's a, you know, that's a ministry. Right, right. To say, hey, check this out, you know, or if CC has something going on, like you know, check this out. That's a that's a distribution, mm -hmm. and I feel like we have to be more intentional about that. You know, um, Saint John Paul II talked about evangelizing the culture, right? Which I love. And it's just his way of saying, like, get out there, right? Yeah. You know, um, use the technologies that are available. You know, um, it means more than that, but it does partly mean um, co-opting those existing technologies for, for our own uses and our own purposes. Mm -hmm. And that's something that is a part of a, of a media literacy. How do I do this? You know, um, how do I engage on social media? Um, how, um, how can I do that just offline right? um, with my colleagues and my coworkers and right. those who live in the residence hall with yeah. me? Telling everybody, you know, I saw this great film, yeah. that, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, getting that film, uh, getting a showing at your parish yeah, or on campus, mm -hmm. you know, bringing that film, maybe even bringing the filmmaker. This is a part of that literacy, the distribution. So we've got, you know, a few hundred dollars in our residence hall fund. Let's, let's bring this filmmaker Let's show this film. Let's show it in DPEC, right? And charge a dollar admission and get a few hundred people in there. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something I think we can all do more of. And the fourth one is just um, advocacy. You know, what does it mean for us to be advocates? And that term sometimes has negative connotations. You know, um, activism can have negative connotations. But mm -hmm. advocacy, we have to be advocates um, for those that are doing it right and um, – that we can all do. It's kind of related to the distribution, but it's different. Mm -hmm. um, how do we how do we advocate for um, for those who who have um, who who have done the work? 
right? It's just not like you just have to do it. You just, you know, um, they need support. Right. Um, so when the, you know, Soren Fellow graduates and decides that she's going to be poor and write the Catholic novel of the 21st century, then, like, She's going to need advocates, right? She's <laughs> right, going right. to need those of us that are willing to go that extra mile. But those are the four, right? Asking better questions what we consume, actually developing, as you say, some of the technical skills to be producers, um, being distributors and curators, and, and then fourth, being advocates. Awesome. Well, I can do those things. So yeah. Great. Yeah. 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 So, so that's a challenge. <laughs> so right? that's a challenge. Exactly. Yeah, you, you use your cell phone for good. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are you working on now? So, um, you know, I... For medical reasons, I, I have had to step back a little bit from from the university, um, you know, daily grind. But it's allowed me to to jump back into some manuscripts um, that I really care about. So one really focuses on popular culture, and it's a book that I wrote in two thousand four, um, and um, I have reclaimed the copyright, and I had shopped around ideas for revision with several publishers, and I ultimately decided. What I wanted to do was publish it through the, my Sender Center for Literacy Education and give it out for free. Oh, wow. So that book's going to have a January 2020, and it's mostly targeted to educators. And so my goal is to get it to 100,000 educators, and I have kind of people pre-ordering, at least giving me their email address where to send it. I'm about, about halfway there, about 50,000 educators so far. Wow. Just in the first couple of weeks. Uh, so going back to that manuscript and looking at you know your – 32-year-old writer self when you're 48. It can be very humbling. It's like, boy, I knew everything when I was 32 years old. You're 50% older right now <laughs> exactly. than you were then. It is scary. It is very scary that that person who wrote the book, I think technically is closer to my oldest son's age than my age now. Wow. Um, but, but that's a lot of fun because I know it's going to be read. It's, it, it was, the first version was, was read. And to think about these ideas 15 years later, the funny thing, Ken, is I expect it to be changing a lot, but I just I find myself agreeing with myself, <laughs> maybe tempering my arguments a little bit, maybe sure. like stepping off of the hobby horse. But yeah. but for the most yeah. part, it's like I still agree with this stuff. Um, the I guess the products have changed, but the concepts haven't changed as much. Um, but it'll be great to kind of shore that book up and to get it out there. Um, then I have a series of projects on the teaching of literature. You know, one of the things I think that, um, you know, we, we share a lot of affinities between, you know, my work over in IEI and, and, and the Nicholas Center, but this idea that powerful literature has a place in the education of our young. Mm-hmm. Um, there are two questions that are, you know, kind of embedded in that. One is what is powerful literature? What does it mean to teach it? Mm-hmm. And so that's always been an area where I've been focused Um that I think that uh, authors have done half the work in giving us these really incredible texts, but um, how we teach them says a lot about our values. We'll say a lot about how our young people see the world. Mm-hmm. So these projects, um, you know, some of them are focused on specific literatures, like how one would teach, you know, the literature of the African diaspora, how one would teach um, literature that connects to Catholic social values or literature of a particular time or place. Um, asking those questions and then working with teachers. And this, um, I have the fortune to be able to work with teachers across a wide range of age groups that they teach. So from elementary to secondary and tertiary education. So these projects would be, you know, uh, engaging first grade teachers, but also college teachers. Yeah. Um, And how do we make these texts come alive um, for young people? Understanding what's at stake. I mean, I think that a great author um, helps to illuminate the human condition. 
um, in ways that other kinds of texts and genres don't do, like reading a novel or um, a play or poem are very different than some of the other technical genres. You know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in some ways, I think a novel, you know, tells history in a different way. Yeah. And historians, historiography is a very important discipline, but it's just different. Sure. Um, so I'm, I'm super excited about um, being able to work on the ground with teachers. Part of my role in the Center for Literacy Education, we're now home of the National Council of Teachers of English Squire Office for, for Research. So we're, we're hosting that office and basically um, kind of responsible for the research trajectory of the entire professional organization. So wow. a quarter million teachers. Yeah. No pressure. Yeah, you no know, pressure. <laughs> but we get to set the agenda, yeah. you know, wow. and help them think differently about um, the teaching of literature. And I believe that the teaching of literature has always been connected to value propositions. Um, and I think that's important. You can't eliminate the value proposition from the educational enterprise. Yeah. Um, but we do have to ask the question of what, what now do we value? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the, that's the second set of projects. And the third um, are, uh, you know, the, the academic word I call discourse studies. And that's really just uh, kind of cultural studies looking at um, the media um, and through asking specific questions about, like, how are we forming a set of ideas or values about a particular theme or idea. So the two that I've really been focused on is um, the African diaspora, um, our attitudes toward a group of people and a place are largely determined by the, the media that we consume. So that's everything from film and television to music to news media to political documents. Um, the second major area of study is really Catholicism in the media. Um, and there are a few others on campus at McGrath and elsewhere that are really interested in this question, but how is the church and how is the faith constructed and deconstructed mm-hmm. in media discourse? Um, my goal is to um, use this year of recovery um, to, to, to really jump into that research, but to write some proposals because I, I think that um, we, we have to call out the anti-Catholicism in the, um, in, in the work of the media, you know, and I consider myself, you know, kind of pro-Catholic and anti-racist. And so these two studies allow me to deal with each of these areas, right? Right, right. you know, because we, um, uh, we just have to hold the media to account, right? you know, that you can't continue um, to just uncritically distribute whether it's you know around race or around religion um these very negative messages without people who are impacted by that speaking out and i want to do it in an academic way you know um edward saeed who was a colleague he was at columbia before i got there but um he did that for the islamic world and said that you know the anti Islamic sentiment in the media is unconscionable, but he, he did it in an academic way. He just kind of laid out the text, and you know these are the um, these are all the ways that um, this is an unacceptable discourse. Uh, and I was really inspired by that, you know. And I thought, this well, this is, first of all, this is something we should be doing for the African diaspora, um, for these kids, whether you're in Haiti or Trinidad or Gary, Indiana or South Bend, and you're just watching TV and no one's around, what are you learning about yourself? 
or you're kind of reading these messages through your cell phone. Like they're, they're teaching you things. Mm-hmm. They're teaching you that you're ugly or unintelligent. Well, I, I think it's the same way for Catholicism. It might get to attend Catholic schools, but if you're, um, you know, a devout Catholic in a public school, and like, what are you learning about your faith implicitly through the discourse? Um, so I'm really excited about that work. Um, I have some working hypotheses, as you can imagine, <laughs> about <laughs> what, what, oh, fine. But, uh, but I'm more excited about um, helping us just to be able to walk away from these discourses and to have um, a language to deconstruct them. You know, and you have to call um, anti-Catholicism what it is, mm-hmm. you know, that it's acceptable. You know, it's acceptable to say things about Catholics and the church that you could not say about other religions. Right. When did that become okay? Right. So yeah. you can, if we look at a, a media story, right, and we look at a transcript. So that, that's the kind of, when it get down that granular level, um, say it has become acceptable, mm-hmm. you know, and um, 90%, and that's being generous, 90% of the stories that cover the church are negative. It's being very generous. Yeah. <laughs> they just talk yeah. about, you know, a particular crisis. They don't talk about the good that the church does. Yeah. Uh, so I want to use my academic platform sure. to kind of speak back against that. Well, and this is clearly related to what you were saying earlier, too. Sure. That first thing that we need to do is to ask, what is this saying? What is the media saying? Yeah. And if it's implicit in everything that, in, in nine, more than 90% of the stories, if that anti-Catholicism is implicit, that's going to change the way I view my own faith, is essentially what you're saying, too. Exactly. You know, it's kind of that Schrodinger's cat kind of thing. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Uh, by reading the story, I'm I'm less compelled by my own faith, and by being less compelled by my own faith, uh, it's, I'm becoming an anti-Catholic in a way, too. Exactly. Which uh, is a self-hatred. Yeah. Well, that's, that's where the work really starts for me, you know, yeah. in this um, um, kind of an ontology of self-loathing. And so in the two studies I talked about, you can, um, there's a relationship between media consumption and self-loathing. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you're ashamed. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of folks that are that feel as though they should be ashamed of their faith be, because of this larger media discourse. Sure. So, so the, yeah. So I, my work is kind of challenging myself to do what I what I mentioned, <laughs> what like you say, yeah. to ask different questions and and to produce. You know, um, it's a different kind of production. It's not like I'm uh, making films or documentaries. Although there, there might be an interesting documentary, you right. know, um, to work with some filmmakers on this. But the, the first phase is really to gather the artifacts and to what I call an archive, so to create an archive of, um, of, of kind of media artifacts and to begin to systematically ask these questions. Wow. Uh, yeah. Well, that sounds like you've got a, quite a project, Eddie. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming to be with us. And, and um, I, what, a, what a delightful... What a delightful conversation. Thank you, Ken. It's been my pleasure. Thank you to Professor Ernest Morell. Find a link to his excellent Bread of Life talk, as well as contact information to receive a copy of his forthcoming book in the show notes. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast so that you can always get the latest episodes by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. We would love your feedback. Please review the show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
and email your suggestions to cecpodcast at nd.edu. Our theme music is I Don't Know by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions. <laughs>